Hello. Excited to be here once again, singing and enjoying God's Word together. Today we're going back to the book of Matthew. The past few weeks we kind of took a break, but before that, that's what we were doing, working through the book of Matthew. And so now we are back here in the middle of Matthew where Jesus is is teaching. He's going about his earthly ministry here on earth, and he's going and he's teaching. So we're picking up in Matthew 12, and we're going to read verses 33 through 41. You can follow along with me as I read. Either make the tree good and its fruit good, or make the tree bad and its fruit bad. But the tree is known by its fruit. You brood of vipers, how can you speak good when you are evil? For out of abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. The good person, out of his good treasure, brings forth good. The evil person, out of his evil treasure, brings forth evil. I tell you, on the day of judgment, people will give account for every careless word they speak. For by your words, you will be justified. And by your words you will be condemned. Then some of the scribes and the Pharisees answered him, saying, Teacher, we wish to see a sign from you. But he answered them, An evil and adulterous generation seeks for a sign. But no sign will be given to it, except the sign of the prophet Jonah. For just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, So will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. The men of Nineveh will rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it, for they repented at the preaching of Jonah. And behold, something greater than Jonah is here. Let's pray. Dear God, we thank you for your word. It is good and it is true, God. Even when it is harsh to read, it is still good and it is still true. We ask that you move in our hearts and our minds this morning, that we are able to see you in your word, God. I want to give you all the praise, all the glory, all the honor, for you are the only one worthy of it. Amen. Currently, one of my favorite stand-up comedians is a guy by the name of Nate Bergazzi. He has a couple of Netflix specials. If you're interested, you can talk to me after the service about him. Um, And if you want to know a lot more about my opinions on what makes a good stand-up or what specific order you should watch Nate Bergazzi's specials in, uh, we can talk about that. It's going to take some time, but it is extremely important. I know Jerry and Christine can uh, testify to the fact that I could talk about it for quite some time. But he's one of my favorite comedians right now. In one of his specials, he has just a couple-minute bit about what happens when you have a dog who's deathly afraid of thunderstorms. I don't know if any of you can relate, but Parker and I have a dog um, who's terrified of thunder. Um, It's been a lot better since we moved from Florida. Um, We also call it Big Boomies in our house. Um, But we we, we related to to this story. So at this time, Nate goes on about one time late at night, it started thundering real bad. The dog was freaking out. His wife and him were stumbling around the house trying to find special medicine that they would give the dog so the dog would calm down. He realized he needed to get this medicine because he came to the realization, and he says this, there's only so many times you can tell a dog it's just thunder before you're like, she's just not getting it. 
back to our passage, what's going on here. In our passage, we have Jesus, and, and he's teaching. He's ministering to all those who came to hear him. And he's also dealing with scribes and Pharisees. And personally, this part of the gospel narrative is one of my favorites. We see Jesus kind of spoon-feeding these, these moral lessons, giving advice on how to live, how to care for others. And at times, he would use parables to teach these lessons and these truths, which are, which are packed with great, great lessons for us to live by. But for me, the best part about this is, is usually this entire time that Jesus is doing that, he's throwing so much shade at the scribes and the Pharisees. Basically saying, I'll tell you the truth, but you're just not getting it. I like to think of Jesus as jimming the camera. Um, I don't know if you don't know what that means, but if you're a fan of The Office, you probably do. Where, where Jesus may say something, or after this parable, that clearly didn't sink in with the Pharisees and the scribes. They, 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 they responded, clearly missing the point. I can just imagine Jim, sorry, Jesus looking at the camera. <laughs> I can imagine Jesus looking at the camera like Jim in the office would, just kind of give a little smirk, a shrug, or just a shake of his head in disapproval. These guys are not getting it. Now, that might not exactly be what's happening here. I might be twisting it for a humorous punch. But you can see this throughout Jesus' ministry, right? Jesus teaches a great moral lesson, simple to follow, sometimes with an illustration, but the scribes and Pharisees just don't seem to get it. And that's what we're going to look at briefly today. Why are these individuals just not getting it? It's important to know the audience, right? So, so often there would be a, a multitude of people coming to Jesus and teaching these, while he's teaching these lessons. And everything Jesus taught is, is worth listening to for all people. But specifically in this passage, you see him kind of staring right at the scribes and the Pharisees, right? He pedaled to the floor right at them, challenging them hard for their unbelief. While you might be easy for us to be like, yeah, go Jesus, get them. Remember who the scribes and the Pharisees were. They were the religious leaders of the day. They were the pastors. They were the elders. They are the leadership of the church. Or even simpler, the scribes and the Pharisees were the ones who claimed to know God and know his word. So these people that Jesus, the Son of Man, God himself is just kind of brutally ripping apart in our passage could very well be us. Now that probably doesn't feel good. But there is hope to fully see that, to, to the best of our ability, how beautiful Jesus is and how great our hope is, we must start off with how broken and corrupt we are. So through this passage, we're going to see that the impact of sin has left us with a corrupt heart and mind. Because of that, we often are unable to truly see the remedy. The impact of sin has left us with a corrupt heart and mind and because of that, we often are unable to truly see the remedy. The remedy being the fix to our problem of a corrupt heart and mind. So first, what do I mean by a corrupt heart? You can look at verses 33 through 35 again. Either make the tree good and its fruit good. Make the tree bad and its fruit bad. For the tree is known by its fruit. You brood of vipers, how can you speak good? When you are evil, for out of the abundance of the heart the mouth speaks. 
The good person out of his good treasure brings forth good. The evil person out of his evil treasure brings forth evil. So what's the moral lesson that Jesus is teaching here? The words we speak are the outflow of our heart. If our heart is filled with anger, frustration, or hatred, our actions and our words will reflect those emotions. It's just kind of how we work, how we function. So, so if our hearts are filled with love, compassion, and grace, so too our actions and words will produce love, compassion, and grace. Simply put, our heart drives our thoughts, actions, and words. To explain these verses even further and more eloquently, one commentator says this, and I quote, Men's language discovers what country they are of. Likewise, what manner of spirit they are. The heart is the fountain, words are the streams. A troubled fountain and a corrupt spring must send forth muddy and unpleasant streams. Nothing but the salt of grace cast into the spring will heal the waters, season the speech, and purify the corrupt communication. An evil man has an evil treasure in his heart. And out of it brings forth evil things. End quote. The heart is the source of water. The words are the stream. The, the, if the source is corrupted, the water sent down the stream will also to be corrupted. Again, our heart drives our thoughts, actions, and words. So you can see Jesus saying, watch your mouth. It reflects the true nature of your heart. And then there's this warning, picking up in 36. I tell you, on the day of judgment, people will give account for every careless word they speak. For by your words you will be justified. By your words you will be condemned. How do you all think we're going to fare on judgment day when we had to answer for every word that we have said? I won't speak for you, but I know for me I would be in serious trouble. In a way, I would be crying out the same thing found in Romans 7, where it says, Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? Our hearts are sick. They are corrupt. They're tarnished by sin. We have this unyielding force that often drives us. This, this force that tells us, you can find true happiness apart from God. You don't need his rules. You don't need to obey God. You can do whatever you want. Our hearts are torn, they're bleeding, they're corrupt because of the impacts of sin. And because of that, we are often led to sin again, because our hearts are the driving force behind who we are. And on top of that, we often speak hurtful and harmful things, as it's just another outflow of our heart. I know I might bring this up a lot, but it's, it's one of my favorite verses because it's such a big gut punch. Jeremiah 17, 9 says, The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? Now, I wrote out here a couple of practical ways that how we can help live out this lesson that Jesus is teaching, but it started to come off as those like cheesy BuzzFeed quizzes. Like, the, like, which friend's character are you? I'm a Monica, by the way. <laughs> but each time I wrote this out, it just came off really kind of cheesy to me. It came out like, how to find out if you're a jerk on social media? Or, how does the way you talk about your enemies reflect your heart? 
Now, it could go into that, but I don't know how helpful it would be. Because, again, it's just tips and tricks, right? It doesn't address the major problem of a corrupt heart. And it's strange because Jesus is teaching this moral lesson, and it's so simple, isn't it? But when you really reflect on it, it's difficult to think to a solution to our heart problem. The heart is corrupt, and the heart is what is at our core. It's the thing driving our thoughts, actions, and words. It's going to be impossible for us to fix it on our own, or by our own will, or with tips and tricks on how to live a better life. We need something better than us and our corrupt hearts. And that remedy is out there. It is possible, but sadly, we often let our corrupt heart do the driving instead of turning to the solution. We often let our corrupt heart corrupt other parts of us. Say, for example, our minds. If you look at verses 38 and 39. But then some of the scribes and Pharisees answered him, saying, Teacher, we wish to see a sign from you. But he answered them, An evil and adulterous generation seeks for a sign. What's going on here? Simply we have the religious figures coming to Jesus. Jesus hands them this lesson. Your heart drives your thoughts, actions, and words. So if your heart's in a bad place, bad actions. Good place, good actions. Simple enough to figure out. You would think. But remember, these guys just are not getting it. So after Jesus brings this lesson, the very first response that these people give is basically saying, prove it. Prove to us that you have the authority to teach this lesson. Prove it to us by, like, I don't know, doing a trick for us. It reminds me of the scene in Spider-Man Homecoming. At the beginning of the movie, we see Peter Parker running around his neighborhood doing his friendly neighborhood duties. Then one guy sees him from a distance and says, hey, you're that spider guy from YouTube. And Peter replies, call me Spider-Man. And the guy responds, okay, Spider-Man, do a flip. That's all he wants to see. And this is after Spider-Man already fought and held his own against Captain America, the Winter Soldier, and the Falcon. But this guy just wanted to see a little trick to be impressed by Spider-Man. So these Pharisees are looking at Jesus, scratching their heads, and just say, you know what, just show us a sign. Jesus replies, no, I don't even know why you're asking me that. You can't even comprehend in your mind the power that I really have. I'm not going to do a trick for you. Instead, I'm once again going to tell you who I am. Maybe this time you'll get it, but I'm afraid it's not going to stick. Jesus was used to these types of interactions. This, there's a count in the Gospel of Mark that I think is another one of those Jim from the office moments. Mark 8, 33 through 13, it simply says this, The Pharisees came and began to argue with him, seeking from him a sign from heaven to test him. And he sighed deeply in his spirit and said, Why does this generation seek a sign? Truly, I say to you, no sign will be given to this generation. And he left them, got into the boat again, and went to the other side. Jesus says, No. I'm not some puppet to do your bidding, and he just straight up leaves. These people are living with a corrupt heart, and it has left them with a body that is now corrupt, and their minds are too corrupted. They have the inability to see Jesus for who he is. 
Maybe if Jesus just shows up a sign, then maybe just one more sign, then I will believe. Do we treat God this way? Do we ever say, God, if you do this for me, then I'll do that. Please, God, show me a sign. Prove to me you are who you are. When I was a little kid, and hopefully this sounds familiar, otherwise I'm just going to come out real weird. When I was a little kid, and I would get sick, I would often bargain with God. God, if you make me better, I will read my Bible more. I will be nicer to my brothers. I'll be a better person. I'll eat my vegetables. Now, I'm not saying we shouldn't bring our wants, needs, and desires to God, but we shouldn't turn our prayers into bargaining chips or tests for God to pass. And maybe, if you were like me, or have done something similar, maybe we've bargained with God, and maybe we ask for a sign to prove that he is real, and maybe we can connect the dots and realize that we're not as different from these scribes and the Pharisees found here. There are a couple of reasons why the Pharisees could have presented these questions or these challenges to Jesus, but it boils down to the same thing. But a couple of reasons could be, we see earlier in Matthew that they're always trying to find Jesus to, to catch him, to get him in trouble. Right? Maybe they're also trying to discern that who's this Jesus guy. Maybe he's actually, maybe he's like a demon sent to drive people away from God. Whatever it was, it can be boiled down to the fact that they just could not wrap their minds around who Jesus actually was. We also sometimes forget. Maybe we're unable to comprehend in our corrupt minds who Jesus is. And in these verses, he tells us exactly who he is. Picking up halfway through 39, Jesus continues, he says, but no sign will be given to it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. For just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. The men of Nineveh will rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it, for they repented at the preaching of Jonah. I've been talking a little bit now, and to say I'm going to go through the entire book of Jonah would be kind of ludicrous at this point. But I'm going to try to in 30 seconds. You can, you can time me if you want. All right. Go. Chances are you heard the story of Jonah and the whale or the big fish. Jonah, a prophet, called by God to go to Nineveh, a place that was blatantly against God. Jonah was to go and preach, repent, or be destroyed. Two things, really rough message to really try to get some traction. And two, Jonah hated the Ninevites. He thought them dying would actually be a good thing. He, was so de- he so desperately did not want to go to Nineveh that he ran the opposite way. Storm happened. He realized it was God. Thrown overboard. Fish. Num, num, num. Boom. Jonah in Nineveh. Jonah says, repent or be destroyed. And they do. Later on, there's a plant that provided shade. A worm ate it. Jonah got mad. End timer. The most amazing part of this story is, is after Jonah had spent three days inside of a giant fish, he came out, he gave a message, and all the people of Nineveh repented. God's enemies recognized their faults, and they turned towards God and were saved. And now in our passage, Jesus is saying, even the Ninevites would look at you religious leaders and be ashamed of the scribes and the Pharisees because you guys didn't get who Jesus was. 
Jesus brought this up in a way of saying, if you think God accomplished amazing things through Jonah, just wait till you see what the Son of Man does. It's going to be something far greater. But they still didn't get it. The corrupted heart and mind makes it hard to see the truth. We need a solution. We need a remedy. Remember the Nate Bergazzi bit about his dog. The problem's pretty simple, of course. The, the dog can't understand when he verbally tried to explain in the English language to the dog, it's just thunder, you're safe, you'll be okay. It's a dog. And dogs, despite the lie, the Hollywood magic behind the Homeward Bound franchise would lead you to believe dogs can't talk. <laughs> Nate's dog legitimately could not comprehend what was being said. Because of the impact of sin, because of our corrupted hearts and minds, we, in a sense, have blinders on. We have trouble comprehending what Jesus is saying. And Jesus knows that it's hard for us to comprehend. When Jesus was talking to Nicodemus in John 3, he says this, If I told you earthly things and you do not believe, how can you believe if I tell you heavenly things? We can't comprehend it. So we may very much be left confused or out of the loop when we hear Jesus say things like something greater than Jonah is here. So what is this remedy? If it's not just trying to do better. If we don't have the ability to change or fix our corrupt hearts or minds, or if we struggle to comprehend God's word, what is the remedy? It's not a trick. The remedy is Jesus. It always was, it always will be Jesus. This is what and how we can be free of a life tarnished and corrupted by sin. There's nothing we can do to fix the problem. The fact is, we tried to live life on our own, and that's when sin first grabbed us in the first place. Because of Jesus' life, death, and resurrection, the words of Ezekiel are true when God says, and I will give you a new heart. And a new spirit I will put within you. I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. The remedy comes from God. The remedy is God. And it's God working in us and through us. He's the surgeon because we have shown we can't be trusted to hold the scalpel. We can see also that our sin-tarnished bodies is remedied in verses like Romans 6, 6-7. through we know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. For one who has died has been set free from sin. Now Jesus, as our Redeemer, providing the remedy, we are transformed by the Spirit. We are free to live a life not dedicated to our corrupt hearts and minds, but instead a life dedicated to pursuing God, something that our sinful nature made it impossible for us to do. In 2 Corinthians 3, it says, And we all with unveiled face, beholding the glory of God, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. From this comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. So once we were prisoners to sin and the impact of sin has left us with a corrupt heart and mind, 
Because of that, we often are unable to truly see the remedy. But God, being perfect in his mercy, grace, and love, has provided a way for us to see him. We see him in Jesus and only Jesus. Through Jesus, we can finally get it. And because of that, we can sing as David sings in Psalm 51, Create in me a clean heart, O God, renew a right spirit within me. And we can sing with a renewed heart and mind that my sin has been defeated. Jesus now and ever is my plea. The chains are released. I can sing. I am free. Yet not I, but through Christ in me. And day by day, I know he will renew me until I stand with joy before the throne. Let's pray. Dear God, we come to you and only you, God, our Redeemer, our remedy, the one we so desperately needed, God. You've come and you've saved us from our corrupt bodies, our corrupt minds, our corrupt hearts, God. We ask that you move in us, that you lead us, that you guide us, God, throughout our life, that you show us what love and compassion and mercy and grace is so that we can live that out in our lives, not being led by our own sinful desires, but being led by the desires that you have for us. You are good, God, and we ask that you move in us to truly get that. We give all the praise, all the glory, all the honor for you, the only one worthy of it. Amen. Amen. Um, Jesus is the remedy.